Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. It's been over a week since the fighting between Israel and Hamas started. And so far, while there's talk of a ceasefire while we're recording this, the fighting is still going on and the human cost is still horrific. There are also some important political ramifications of what's happened so far. It suggests some really striking new things about the conflict, about America's role in it, about the regional role in it, about the way that Israelis and Palestinians are thinking about it. We're going to talk about those today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Zach Beecham, here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hello. Hey. Uh, Jen, I want to start with you. Uh, One thing you and I have been talking about as we've been following the conflict and and writing about and reporting is this really unprecedented strike that happened on Wednesday amongst Palestinians. You saw, for the first time in decades, Arab Israelis or Palestinian citizens of Israel, whichever term you prefer, refusing to show up to work alongside Palestinians in the West Bank and refugee camps. It was a general act of, of Palestinian nonviolent resistance against what they see as Israeli abuses during the war. It's remarkable, right? This kind of pan-Palestinian solidarity is, is not something that you typically see during these conflicts. Right. So if you kind of go back in history to the Oslo Peace Accords uh, and and even just kind of earlier, you know, divisions of Palestinians with the creation of Israel, right? You had these huge numbers of Palestinian refugees living in in nearby Arab countries, um, in particular in Lebanon and in Jordan. You have, you know, the West Bank divided from Gaza with Israel down the middle. You have a huge Palestinian kind of broader diaspora kind of globally. And then you also, of course, have the Arab Israelis who, you know, are citizens of Israel, who are the Palestinians who basically, you know, stayed and became citizens of Israel and gave up their refugee status. You have Palestinians who live in East Jerusalem who have a different kind of status than Arab Israelis. So you have all these different groups. And they've historically been very divided just, you know, because of basic geography. Yes, quite quite literally divided. Literally divided. But also by fact of their different geography, they've also ended up having somewhat different experiences, right? The Palestinians who live in Gaza are under a blockade. They are ruled by Hamas you know, militant group. You have the Palestinians who live in the West Bank who are under the authority of the Palestinian Authority, you know, in partnership with Israel. Um, it's a very different relationship, than, you know, a very different governance structure than in Gaza. You have Palestinians who have grown up, you know, generations in refugee camps, often in very squalid conditions in Jordan and Lebanon, etc. So there are a lot of different kind of struggles that are going on. And because of this division, there hasn't been a lot of unity. There have been some attempts and there have been some, you know, tries and a lot of, you know, Palestinians have seen it as a unified cause. But it has been very divided even when there's like an uprising or if there's a, you know, 
conflict, there's a clash in East Jerusalem, it may not be echoed in the West Bank, et cetera. That's not what we're seeing this time. We're very much seeing this kind of emergence, you know, and it's it's early on. Again, it's been, you know, a little bit more than a week. So I think I want to be really careful about predicting any broad long-term trends here, obviously. But yeah, I mean, we're seeing, you know, this kind of broader, almost an understanding of, you know, our struggle is all one, rather than seeing this as kind of like disparate events and and disconnected, you know, fights. You know, we saw that this kind of all started in Jerusalem at Al-Aqsa Mosque, like we talked about last week on the show, and in Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood. And then it extended to, you know, Hamas getting involved and bringing Gaza into it. But now we're seeing mass protests in the West Bank. And, you know, the Palestinian leadership itself is divided between the Palestinian Authority and the West Bank and and Hamas in Gaza. And so, you know, we're really seeing with this national strike, there were marches that were really remarkable with Palestinians coming from the refugee camps in, in Jordan and Lebanon, marching to the border with Israel kind of en masse. Um, And so I think that's really notable that Palestinians are essentially seeing this as like, look, we are all fighting the same problem, which is, you know, this kind of brutal occupation. It takes various forms. We, you know, but essentially at the end of the day, it's about, you know, we want the right of return. We want to be able to come back to our homes that were lost in the creation of Israel, et cetera. And so it's a bright spot in what is an extremely grim situation. And I think it's also just really important to note that this is nonviolent resistance, this you know, huge strike that we saw, work stoppage, these marches are peaceful, nonviolent, you know, civil resistance actions that are really important. You know, if you disapprove of Palestinian armed resistance in the form that it takes in Gaza, well, this is the kind of resistance that you would prefer to see, right? Is this kind of nonviolent you know, uprising. And I think it's a really remarkable thing to see, especially given that it's happening in the midst of of a brutal war. What's also kind of fascinating is that you're getting this same level of, of sort of message coherence online. I, uh, for a story that will come out at some point, you know, I, I went on like TikTok and Instagram for the first time ever. Um, and what you find is that, look, there's always been social media resistance um, when conflicts like this you know, come up. Uh, social media was actually pretty big in like 2012 and 2014 during um, Israel and, and, and uh, Hamas flare-ups. And even 2015, someone so called like the social media war. But this one, an expert called it the TikTok intifada, meaning that there really is a, a sense of resistance, a sense of a unified pushback online. And it's having quite remarkable success. Part of the reason is, again, there's a narrative coherence, and that's in part, not solely, but in part, due to the success of the Black Lives Matter movement. You, you're, if you've been sort of seeing images, you might have seen some um, signs that people are holding that say Arab Lives Matter or Palestinian Lives Matter. And that's adding, a, and it's, that phrase, by the way, has made it to the floor of the U.S. Senate. You know, Sir Bernie Sanders said that. Um, it's something that you're also seeing other lawmakers in the House say. And that's reverberated uh, around with celebrities from top soccer players in, in the U.K., like Paul Pogba, to Bella and Gigi Hadid, who's, who have Palestinian father, and even Gal Gadot, who's not saying uh, Palestinian lives matter, but, you know, is Israeli a former IDF uh, soldier from from conscription uh, and who in the past had been pretty – all of her comments during these kinds of conflicts had been, you know, go Israel, you know, good luck. Um, now, uh, not both sidesing, but sort of saying, like, I want Israel to live in peace, but I also want our neighbors to live in peace. So there seems to be a decent amount of success here, and and 
it helps that you now have Palestinians who've been training for a really long time to, uh, you know, how to create memes, how to send, send them out effectively, or rather create effective memes, you know, get the right videos out to people, get them to the right media organizations. Like a lot of sort of grassroots background work has gone into this to prepare for a moment like this. And so I think that's what's coalescing in, in le- this movement and leading to even the strike that Jen just talked about. There's always sort of geographic um, separation, West Bank, Gaza, the diaspora, but they're all sort of singing from the same sheet of music online. And that's uh, incredibly helpful when you consider that usually online, it's the Israeli government that speaks with a generally one voice. So it's it's kind of more equalized on that sense. And it's a it's a different sort of social media ballgame now. The the problem though is that like on the sort of macro political stage, like these are ground level developments, right? But in the the big picture of who controls the levers of power, the war isn't empowering people who are marching in the streets. It's not empowering TikTokers online. The two f- political factions that have benefited from all the suffering and death are Benjamin Netanyahu and his Likud party in Israel and Hamas. And right, this is this is a very consistent pattern in Israeli-Palestinian relations, that violent conflict benefits the extremists or right-wing, whatever language you prefer, on both sides of the conflict, right? So in the Netanyahu case, uh, it looked like his opponents, who are a very diverse ideological bunch, were about to be able to put together a coalition that would take him out of power, right? But then when the conflict broke out, including the, the violence on Israel's streets, which is hugely significant and we will probably talk about more, the negotiations collapsed in part because they would require a far-right party, Naftali Bennett's, to align with uh, Mansour Abbas, an Islamist's Ra'am party, an Arab party. And Bennett said that he couldn't do that in the context of Arab-Jewish violence on the street. Now, this is exactly when I think you should have uh, an Arab-Jewish coalition government. Right. But that's that's like not how Bennett thinks about it because he's a right-winger in Israel. So the result is that the, those coalition negotiations fell apart, and Netanyahu is is not facing united opposition or one that had any semblance of putting together a, a little bit of unity for a short period of time. And it looks like after this war is over, Israel is going to head into a fifth election unless somehow things cool down and the opposition gets it back together. But like, kind of seems like the violence saved his political skin, and Hamas. Uh, is reaping the benefits of being the party of armed resistance to Israel, even though their decision to escalate this war has led to over 200 dead Palestinians. Uh, it, you know, when you are standing up to that kind of violence, even if in some way you caused it, that does tend to redound to the benefit of the violent factions in Palestinian politics. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point on, on Hamas. Um, you know, the political leadership in, you know, we talked about this a bit last week, but the political leadership in the West Bank uh, has more or less failed miserably. You know, they are secularist, um, you know, party, the Fatah party, uh, as opposed to Hamas, which is, you know, decidedly Islamist party. But they have also, Fatah, you know, the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank, their kind of, you know, form of, you know, I guess, theory of change, if you want to call it that, you know, they work with, Israel. They, you know, govern the West Bank hand in hand with Israel. I mean, Israel still has ultimate control, especially over the security forces and police and things like that. But they govern kind of in conjunction with Israel. And it was, you know, part of, you know, the the Oslo process and, and, you know, 
the peace process that they would eventually, you know, take over in a final peace deal. But like their form of resistance is essentially like, you know, trying to to carve out governance that looks closer and closer to independence while working with Israel rather than fighting in outright violence, war, you know, military resistance as Hamas does. And it has failed in the sense that there is no peace process to speak of now. Their, you know, increasingly dim view of the prospects of a two-state solution, though whether, you know, I know Zach has thoughts on that, but but essentially, you know, they have failed to deliver the independence and the peace that their theory of change essentially promised. And so they are also extremely weak and sclerotic and corrupt. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas is getting very old. They're very much, you know, not kind of seen as particularly effective in terms of governing themselves. And then you have Hamas, right, showing that, like, we are the ones who are really fighting. We are the ones who are going to deliver the freedom from Israeli oppression. And they're also, frankly, terrible at governing in Gaza, um, in part because Israel makes them be really terrible at governing. That's part of the point of why the blockade exists on Gaza. But they also, you know, are very much focused on militant resistance and they use every scrap of resource they can get for that purpose rather than making the lives of people in Gaza actually better on a day-to-day basis. But the thing is, and I think this is a really important fact, is that a lot of Palestinians in both Gaza and the West Bank know all of this. And yet, when you end up in a conflict like this, a lot don't, you know, they still don't like their leadership. They know that they suck and that they're divided and that, you know, they wish they had better leaders, etc. But they still mostly blame Israel because at the end of the day, it's the Israeli occupation that has put them in this situation. And so when you have, like, it can be hard to, to understand, especially in a democracy like the United States, if you're an American, like, why wouldn't you just get better leaders? Like, these are terrible leaders. But one, you know, they hadn't had elections, uh, the Palestinians, uh, since 2006 when Hamas took over, eventually took over Gaza and won the elections. They were about to have those elections. And then Mahmoud Abbas more or less figured out that he's probably going to lose and canceled them and for a few other reasons. But that's the thing that I think it's important to understand that like even as bad as the Palestinian leadership is and as unhappy as many Palestinians are, at the end of the day, it's still Israel that is causing this, right? That They are the occupying power here. And so, you know, I think it helps explain like why don't they throw off the yoke of, of Hamas or, you know, overthrow Mahmoud Abbas. It's like, well... Yeah, maybe they suck. Maybe they're they're not great leaders, but like they're what we've got. We don't really have a mechanism to change that. And at least they're trying to push back. And so I think it helps explain some of the support that you see for for Hamas, even if people find them extremely distasteful. Yeah, it's worth noting, Jen, that there are similar dynamics on the Israeli side too. Right. So exactly. there's there, yeah, there's some really good like this isn't just about coalition negotiations, as I just suggested a second ago. Uh, there's some really good political science evidence that suggests that earlier rounds of terrorism and rocket fire increased voter support for the Israeli right wing, right? This isn't just, you know, someone like Bennett decides that he doesn't want to partner with an Arab party. It's that violence tends to push 
Israeli voters to the security right, even though in some ways it vindicates like the left-wing theory of the case, right? The argument that you can't stop this. I mean, we're on our fourth round of, of Gaza fighting at this point, and it, it just keeps happening, right? The rockets keep coming. You'd think the status quo should be declared you know, bankrupt and failed by Israeli voters who are just purely concerned with Israeli security. But from their point of view, what's happened suggests that the Palestinians aren't interested in peace, that they're violent, that they, you know, Israel tried to make some peace deals and it withdrew from Gaza, at least its ground presence and its settlers, and the result was rocket fire and a Hamas takeover. And this narrative of the conflict has been so powerful among Israelis and has been reinforced by every subsequent round of violence that it seems likely that, you know, they just, they think that we are responding defensively to the rockets that they fired at us. And from that point of view, why would you want to empower people who would like to compromise with the Palestinians or ease the blockade on Gaza, right? That's just, that's just rewarding people for attacking us. And I, I don't agree with this analysis of it. It is just clearly the dominant one in Israel right now and explains why status quo that has failed so miserably is so difficult to change, at least on that side of the conflict. Obviously, this is, you know, Israel, Hamas, Gaza, so I don't want to overemphasize the role of the U.S., but the U.S. does have a, a role to play here, and it is a part of the story. And at risk of oversimplifying many years of history, um, l- let me dig into to this sort of bit. So it is true that the U.S. designated Hamas a terrorist group, and that sort of limits some options there, right? The U.S. has really no connections whatsoever to Hamas. Really, it's like the Egyptians and others that deal with that side um, when, when a conflict like this comes up. Uh, but also it makes it really hard for the U.S. to come up with sort of any policy that seems like a concession to Gaza or Hamas because it is run by terrorists. So you would think then that, okay, well, maybe part of the policy here would be to empower the PA or or the Palestinian Authority or to like maybe get Israel to back off a little bit on the Hamas blockade. But that isn't what happened because on the Israeli side, what we've really seen is like the U.S. has kind of let Israel do what it wants. And as it's moved more to the right, um, under Netanyahu specifically, you know, more settlers have, have gone in. Um, it's become a lot more like hardline government. It's it's given much less shrift to the two-state solution. Um, and so like, despite certain U.S. rhetoric about all this stuff, like the U.S. has had really no success in this space. And it's made it so we, we care a lot less about the Palestinian Gaza side in this case. We've done little to curtail Israel's abuses, um, which which hurts the sort of peace process. And we've helped delegitimize the PA over time because we've given it no legitimacy or support. So again, it is mostly a local issue, right? Um, I don't want to like say it is all America's fault, but America's not helped. And that's why I find it fascinating now that you see there's a, it seems like there are at least Democrats and, and a, a few Republicans trying to quote unquote rectify the situation by going, okay, well, maybe we should condition military aid to Israel. Maybe we should, you know, speak up about the plight of the Palestinians on the Senate floor, which you just never have really seen before. And maybe we should go after our own, you know, the president of our own party, Joe Biden, who until fairly recently has most of the statements he's made have been almost unabashedly pro-Israeli without really mentioning what's going on with the Palestinians. So, um, it seems like there's a bit of a shift now. Will it be successful? I don't know. Um, and I'm happy to talk more about that because that's, of course, what I think about the most these days. Um, but I, I don't want to sort of like let the U.S. off the hook here. Like part of the problem has been 
the U.S. sort of backed itself into certain corners. And when it had the opportunity to get out of it, um, it really didn't. And it only helped uh, calcify the problems that, that we're seeing right now. I mean, we, we, it's important to, to, I think, split the U.S. into chunks, Alex, um, because like obviously the American role is hugely significant as the traditional broker of Israeli-Palestinian talks, though not Israel-Hamas talks, as you mentioned, That's that Egypt does the ceasefires. But the U.S. plays a real big structuring role in the overall peace process, right? But like there are like structural trends and there are short-term trends, right? And they're somewhat related, but but sometimes point in different directions. And they all influence the way that the United States has been approaching the, the ongoing conflict right now, right? Like the short-term trends are that the Democratic Party empowered one of its relative moderates to be president. Now, he's moved left on social and economic issues, but not so much on, on foreign policy and especially not on this particular topic where he's taken a, a very traditional, like moderate conservative Democratic line. And that's at odds increasingly with congressional Democrats and the Democratic base, both of which are for a variety of different reasons, becoming more skeptical of Israel's role in the conflict, right? And it's not just that you've elected left-wing legislators like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's a Democratic socialist, or Rashida Tlaib, who's, I, I think, the only supporter of a one-state solution to the conflict in Congress and who is of Palestinian descent. And, and she actually was recently in person pressuring Biden to do more for the Palestinians. Um, which is really, I think, a noted controversy that's emblematic of the way the party's dividing amongst itself. But like the most fundamental thing is that a lot of liberal Americans look at what Israel's doing in terms of the continued occupation and expansion of settlements in the West Bank and think like, this is the kind of thing that we stand against, right? This is a form of imperialism and structural racism and oppression that is inconsistent with our, our values and our vision of the way the world should operate. So that is leading to a politics on Capitol Hill, really something totally novel, where Democrats who are critical of Israel are the ones who are taking all the limelight, and the ones who are, are pro-Israel are, are on the defensive in this conflict, right? Like one of them, there's a really telling thing. In Politico this week, I believe it was the morning newsletter playbook, where a, a moderate Democrat was complaining about progressives running or having influence on Joe Biden's foreign policy. This is ironic, right? Because Biden's view has been has been fairly middle of the road. But also, what was notable is that the person was doing it anonymously, right? In the past, you would have the 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 confident, sort of centrist, traditional APAC style pro-Israel legislators being the ones who are out front setting the tone for the party. But now you have the people who are at least moderately critical of Israel's behavior. Uh, being the ones who are setting the tone with the with the polls defined by people who are far more critical of Israel than the Israel's conduct during this war than your your standard democratic legislator in the past. The end result is that there's internal pressure for the U.S. to moderate its stance in in a way that there wasn't before, and that really I think has notable long term implications for the conflict that we're only beginning to grapple with. So I think you're right about this. What I what I'm interested in is it seems like an Overton window has has shifted. And I want to talk about that because it's not just the like AOCs and the slaves and 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 even and all that. I mean, you do mention, of course, in Politico this um, you know, this anonymous person, but we've had on record comments from like pro-Israeli lawmakers criticizing Israel. You've had Robert Menendez, the chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who is about as pro-Israel as they come in the Senate 
you know, call out um, Israel's bombardments. Um, you've had Steny Hoyer, a uh, congressman from Maryland, who, again, is, is you know, very friendly with the, with the pro-Israeli side, um, defend Ilhan Omar after attacks from APAC, the, the lobbying group. And you're seeing it even from Republicans, even though he just sort of walked it back. Senator uh, Todd Young from Indiana, he was the first Republican to call for a ceasefire. Nancy Pelosi doing the same. I mean, like, this has shifted in a very clear on-record way. And the reason it has, I think, is, is sort of twofold. One is Biden kind of put himself in this position. His administration said, we are putting human rights at the center of our foreign policy. Well, this was as big a test as it came. Like Myanmar, kind of easy, right? Like I'm not trying to minimize that conflict, but it's it was politically costless for the U.S. to sanction and say, oh, we stand on the side of, of the pro-democracy movement there. And elsewhere, same deal. You know, we support Navalny and Russia, all that stuff. But this Israel is a central U.S. foreign policy issue. And so like what happened here was really going to test whether Biden believed in that message. And after about a week, sort of, <laughs> right? Like, uh, But I think that gave somewhat space to Democrats to go like, hey, you know, we still stand with Israel. It has a right to defend itself, all well and good. But there is this human rights section we should probably start talking about, and in part because you, Biden administration, said we should. Um, the second is, is what I sort of mentioned earlier with the social media stuff, is like there has been an awakening about racial justice and... Um, and human rights. And like, there has been a connection in the past between Gaza and like, you know, and, uh, and, and, uh, racial equality in the U S like, you know, Malcolm X went to Gaza and stuff like that. Um, it, it does seem like there's this movement and also this sort of younger progressive movement, um, in Congress is, is helpful and like can made a connection between these two issues and wants to push it forward. And now you have, it is possible to say, like, I still support Israel, and just the fact that I come out and say there's this Palestinian issue we should talk about does not make me anti-Israel. Like, that nuance um, wasn't really allowed before. So this is a long way of saying, like, it, this shift, I think, is actually just a shift. I think it is um, the long-term consequences are such that if I'm, like, if I'm Netanyahu, I might survive as prime minister, but I've sort of lost the long-term battle here because now— like is the fact that you have Bernie Sanders like in the Senate and in the House movements to even condition Israeli military aid, like you've lost a long-term fight in term in terms of like the feeling inside the United States. I don't think this goes away. Like that that sort of that's been broken now. That taboo's broken. And it's been broken with Saudi Arabia, and now it's moving to Israel. And so I feel like the this sort of upswell, this is a, a long-winded way of saying, like, I feel, even though it might not be successful in this time, this time, like the progressive foreign policy movement has arrived. It is here. Um, and it has an actual effect on American foreign policy now, um, in a way that it that it sort of didn't, and it's it's been so nascent, but it's grown up very quickly. Like now, Biden, you know. I, I don't think we should minimize that, like, the fact that he went from Israel has a right to defend itself only to I want to see a de-escalation, like, today. I'm not saying that he moved, like, a lot, but that he moved within a week, I think, shows the the sort of the success of this already. This is something we haven't really discussed before, but uh, it's just something that kind of occurs to me, too, um, more broadly. I think the the rise of English language, Arab-based media can't... Uh, be overlooked here. And in particular, you know, I mean, Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera is based out of Doha, Qatar. It is, it has somewhat, you know, independent editorial structures, but at the end of the day is, is owned by the Qatari government. It is a, you know, a product of the Qatari government. Um, and Qatar is a very important player in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because 
a huge chunk of Hamas's political leadership is based in Qatar, not in Gaza, because it is functionally safer for them to be in Qatar and hopefully not get targeted, they hope, right, by Israel, and they operate out of Qatar. And so I think, you know, Al Jazeera itself as a, you know, as an English language, it also operates in, in Arabic as well. But it is also, you know, a very powerful media organization that provides, and I don't want to say that it's like pro-Hamas, I'm not trying to make that equivalency here or, or, or make that suggestion, but it is does provide a more kind of pro-Palestinian, pro-Arab kind of different narrative than you're used to hearing, right? I, you know, I know for a fact that the guidance that they have internally um, on language that they use around this conflict is several pages long, whereas most media organizations do not have that lengthy of guidance. They're very much, you know, careful about showing the kind of, you know, the Arab situation, the the Palestinian situation in a different light, and they are very critical of Israel. And that media is is now in the United States, right? You can now get that in a way, you know, that in the 1980s, 1990s, it's not like, you know, Americans were having a ton of access to media that was based in the Arab world. It was very much not the case, right? And I think that can't be underplayed in terms of how it has brought a different perspective, the other side, if you will, of the conflict to the American consciousness, to the conversation, to the media conversation. Um, and I think that that has been really important in shifting opinions at a very basic level of just introducing other voices who weren't traditionally part of, of the conversation and given voice. So we're going to take a quick break right now. And when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about the regional dynamics of what's going on, how the uh, conflict in Gaza has unfolded uh, in the broader Middle East. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about the ongoing violence in Gaza and, and what it says about the long-term political trajectory of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. One thing I think is, is notable in the way that this has played out is that it's happening in the context of the so-called Abraham Accords, a series of agreements that the Trump administration brokered between Israel and uh, a number of Arab states leading to normalization in and of, of foreign relations between these two countries, that is to say, formal recognition of Israel in a way that didn't happen before. 
uh, in Arab states. And, and it was heralded as like the sea change in the way that the Arab world approached the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, Alex, to what extent do you think that that view has been vindicated by what we've seen during the Gaza fighting? Roughly 0%. Um, <laughs> like, uh, harsh but fair. I, I, harsh but fair. Yeah. Like, I, you know, I may, maybe two to be, I don't know, but like, I don't know, I'm bad at math, but I'm going to say roughly 0%, give or take a percentage. Um, so, so I want to be very clear about this. Like, we need to put Israel, Palestine, and like Israel and the wider region in two separate boxes. Every, there are linkages, but for the purposes of this, let's put them in two separate boxes. There was a theory that you couldn't get Israel to normalize relations with Arab nations until Israel-Palestine was solved, or like you know they reached some sort of peace accord. That was a, that was a, um, a view that even John Kerry, who was Secretary of State in the Obama administration and now uh, the climate envoy for Biden, like firmly believed and said so on the record. So you had the Trump administration make deals with the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan, and the theory was that like that was part of the peace process. They are sold as peace deals. And and I should say, uh, media organizations, including ours, um, are somewhat responsible because it's hard to put normalization of relations in a headline, so a lot of us put peace deals. But they were normalization deals. And that's all well and good. And that should continue. And frankly, like uh, that's, a, that's a bipartisan consensus there. right? Republicans and Democrats agree. It is good that Israel is now openly having relations with other countries, especially countries that did not recognize it before. And that's great. But... An important caveat to this is that, like, just because you normalize relations with Arab nations does not mean that the Israel-Palestine situation is solved. In fact, it was, like, purposefully excluded um, because part of the, the thought process was, well, if we make all these deals, then the Arab nations will feel sort of less inclined to back Palestine or Palestine will feel like it's boxed into a corner. And then those Palestinian leaders will come to the table and negotiate a peace deal from a position of weakness with Israel. Clearly, that hasn't happened. And in fact, we've seen uh, a, a, an uptick in violence because, again, that Abraham Accords just were a completely separate thing. So the peace process is defunct and, and it doesn't look like it's going to come back anytime soon. And it requires like a lot of attention and its own work, right? So again, I, I know there are linkages, but going forward, there's one thing to get Israel to normalize relations with Arab countries, that's all well and good. And then there is also the peace process, which is getting uh, you know less likely by the day. So I want to drill in a little bit here um, and just kind of echo what you're saying and why it's so important to understand how these normalization agreements really shook up the situation in a way that has, I think, directly in some ways led to this violence. You know, we talk about these normalization of relation agreements, right? It means, you know, diplomatic ties, but also economic ties, security relationships, you know, working together on things like counterterrorism and et cetera, et cetera. You know, actually developing like real economic ties, like working together, having travel, like literally having direct flights between the countries. That is a huge deal for Israel, right? That is something that Israel has long wanted. Obviously, for security reasons, it doesn't want to be in a neighborhood that every where every state, every country around you hates you and wants to wipe you off the map doesn't feel great for Israel. And so having that as like a security, you know, kind of guarantee is helpful, but also economically, right? It, it, it's helpful. These are very often very rich, you know, wealthy, and in some cases, powerful Gulf Arab states, in particular, you know, the UAE, and having economic relations with them is, you know, is powerful and, and good 
for your economy. And also rhetorically, right? It also looks good that you have all these Arab countries who, well, they think we're fine. They they like us. So what's wrong with you, like Palestinians? Why, you know, you know, why won't you just get on board here? But I think you need to understand something really important is that the Palestinians got nothing out of these agreements, right? Like as right. like Alex said, they were purposely kept out. And if you go back and look at there was something called the Arab Peace Initiative, right? This was a big deal. This was essentially uh, a peace plan that was put forward uh, initially, I think, in 2002 at the Beirut summit, and then later in 2007, and then again in 2017, right? Like, this was this big plan uh, spearheaded by Saudi Arabia, but other of the kind of Gulf Arab countries. And it was a really big deal because they were offering Israel normalization of relations. They said, this is the big like get, this is the big carrot that you were going to get Israel. But in return, as part of this peace deal, you have to withdraw from the West Bank and Gaza, you know, at the time, but you have to withdraw from all occupied Palestinian territories. You also have to follow, you know, the establishment of a Palestinian state and, you know, with East Jerusalem as its capital, you have to come to some sort of just settlement of the Palestinian refugee issue based on, you know, UN resolutions, et cetera, et cetera. And it was all of the stuff that Israel wanted in these normalization agreements, but Israel would have had to give up a lot of stuff and give in, and it would have, in theory, led to an actual settlement of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Now, that peace initiative went nowhere and collapsed for a whole bunch of reasons that are way too complicated to get into right now, and I don't want to derail the conversation, including violence that derailed it. But now- Not flash- our conversation, to be clear, the, the Arab peace initiative. Right, right. Um, but flash forward to you know 2020 when you had all these normalization agreements under the Trump administration, they all happened with none of the other stuff on the other side, right? Without Israel having to give in at all- on the Palestinian conflict, it was purposely, you know, to go back to Alex's kind of visual, put in a separate box, set up on a shelf and say, we're going to deal with this separately. It's a different thing. And now we are seeing why that was problematic, right? Why that didn't work so well, because you can't just put the Palestinian conflict on a shelf because that's millions of stateless people who are under occupation. That doesn't just go away just because you're tired of dealing with it. It doesn't go away just because you want to have great economic relations with Israel and you think that the Iran threat is more important. So you want to get closer to Israel. That doesn't change the fact that there are millions of stateless people living under occupation. And so we're seeing now, you know, the Arab countries who have signed these agreements are now in this really awkward position where they're having to come out and, uh, oops, you know, criticize Israel and condemn what's going on in a way that they used to, but uh, they look kind of bad because they have all these agreements with Israel now. And their own citizens in many of these Arab Gulf countries are really angry about that and are speaking up in a way that I think these Arab governments didn't expect was going to happen. They thought their their populations had moved on. Well, maybe not. I do think, though, there is somewhat less outrage from Arab countries during this conflict than what we've seen in past conflicts. And I don't want to overgeneralize, right? Not all Arab countries have the same stance on on the current conflict. Uh, But I think in the Gulf in particular, where they've been increasingly aligned with Israel quietly, I mean, the UAE publicly, but, you know, the the Saudis, 
especially, you know, cooperating on the Iranian threat, it just it it leads the regimes there to de-emphasize the Palestine issue, both because it's in their own interest and because they don't seem to need it in the way that Jen was just describing, right? In the past, positioning themselves as, you know, helping the resistance against uh, the Zionist occupiers was like a really valuable way of securing regime legitimacy. Yep. And so so they play it up, right? All, all of these a, a variety of different Arab dictators. And, you know, one of the big arguments for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict being the linchpin of regional security was, well, if you get rid of this excuse, then maybe the dictators will start coming down because they won't have a way to pacify their population anymore or ideologically legitimize their rule. This did not turn out to be particularly correct. It just, like, it, it is true that a lot of citizens in these countries are angry about what's happening in Palestine. It's also not really the case that there's any evidence that that anger is turning into a regime-threatening event, right. maybe in the long run. I, I, I could be proven wrong on this, but it does suggest, at least the for the evidence that I've seen, that the salience of the Israel-Palestine conflict really has declined, even if the Abraham Accords aren't the— uh, the thing that that did it, so to speak. I mean, yeah, it seemed like, and, and to echo points you've been saying, it, if there has been a restructuring, it has been Iran is the problem now, right? And if Iran is the problem now, and there is, by the way, um, a, a convergence of interests between Israel and, like, say, Saudi Arabia and the UAE and a bunch of these countries to, to go back um, and sort of combat Iranian influence in the region. So, it's not to say no one wants the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to be solved. People do, but there are other sort of more immediate interests at this point, and Iran seems to be it. Plus, it should be said that Israel had a pretty, you know, like openly secret relationship with a lot of these Arab nations. And so the, the normalization deals basically formalize something that was already ongoing and we already knew. Obviously, things change. There's travel and a whole bunch of other stuff, and, and that matters. Um, don't get me wrong, but and there'll be an economic windfall, one hopes. But it, it wasn't like this came out of nowhere, right? I mean, they, they were like a secret normalization already kind of sort of anyway. Uh, and, I, and if you're the Palestinians, you're going, okay, well, it's been years since the U.S. really sort of cared or empowered us in the peace process. Its attention also is turned, if it cares about the Middle East at all, it's, it cares about the Iranian nuclear issue and just Iran in general. But its focus is on China. Its focus is on climate change. It's focused on pretty much anything but us. Like, and then you're seeing the Abraham Accords, and you're seeing that, well, when the U.S. engages in anything that tangentially relates to us, it's to normalize Israeli deals. Like, they have nowhere else to go <laughs> in terms of just seeking recourse. And by the way, that does not mean you support Hamas and the rockets they shoot or or you you stand by as the Palestinian Authority becomes more corrupt and feeble. But it it also somewhat, like, I can sort of sympathize and empathize with, like, where else do I go to get people to hear my voice, to get my concerns addressed? And it's really no one in the Middle East, and it surely isn't the United States at this point. Well, there's one one place in the Middle East uh, that that is still very much interested in portraying itself as the one standing, you know, last standing defender of mm. the Palestinians and of Hamas, and that's Iran. Um, right. Sure. Which yeah. <laughs> has been, you know, very clear uh, in the last several days. Just reminding everyone, in case you guys forgot, this is our big thing. We're super into, you know, defending the Palestinians against the Zionist, you know, occupiers, et cetera, as they like to call Israel. And, you know, it's not for nothing that a huge reason why Hamas is as powerful militarily as it is, is thanks to Iran, uh, <laughs> very much active in helping, you know, fund and train and, you know, get 
weapons to Hamas. And, you know, obviously Hezbollah over in Lebanon, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, you know, part of this dynamic that we've been talking about with these normalization agreements with these Arab Gulf countries in particular, um, also Morocco, et cetera, but has been to even further, you know, make Iran look like, from a certain perspective, the only one left standing, protecting and defending Palestinian interests. Now, to be clear, Iran will always look out for its own interests before anyone else's, and it very much uses the Palestinian-Israeli conflict for its own political ends, at just as many of the Gulf Arab countries did for many years, right? It's very much the same dynamic. But the thing is that, you know, as we we mentioned in previous episodes talking about this, and to, to your point, Alex, you know, when you take away increasingly, you know, legitimate, you increasingly take away legitimate forms of resistance, for instance, places like the UN, you know, the Palestinian Authority has tried to get recognition and tried to push through a lot of initiatives, um, international forums, just like the International Criminal Court, the UN, et cetera, and they are blocked pretty much at every turn, uh, in most cases by the United States. And so, you know, if you close that off, if you close off, you know, any kind of form of other, you know, outlets to having, you know, these Arab states as their backers, et cetera, et cetera, it is very clear that you are going to potentially push them further, and them, I mean, specifically Hamas, further into the arms of Iran. And I don't think that's a situation that is helpful for anyone except for Iran and Hamas. But the Palestinians are certainly not going to end up in a better situation because of that. But I think, you know, in trying to counter Iran in the Middle East, in some ways they have essentially emboldened Iran in many ways. And I think that is a problem. I think it's a problem for the Palestinians. I think it's a problem for the conflict because Iran is very much not interested in peace. They are very much interested in in the militant, you know, armed resistance to Israel. And that is not a good dynamic. Yeah. I, I want to say one last thing sort of ties all these different threads of the conversation together, which is that the status quo right now, perhaps paradoxically, makes a really powerful case for deepened U.S. involvement in the conflict, but but just of a different kind than what we're used to seeing, right? Like, let's summarize what we're talking about. There's a very, very violent conflict going on right now. A lot of innocent people are dead. The likely political ramifications of this are uh, an entrenchment of the forces of violence on both sides of the Israeli-Palestinian divide. Hamas will get stronger. And the Israeli right will get stronger as a result of this, most likely. So that's going to make things difficult. You have an increasingly restive uh, Palestinian population who are looking for nonviolent avenues for resistance uh, in a lot of cases, which is, is somewhat in tension with the likelihood that some Palestinians will, will be more likely to support Hamas. But uh, both things can be true at the same time. You have uh, Arab countries that are not going to come to the situation's rescue. You have Iran that's going to inflame it. And so, like, who's the international actor here that's best positioned to do something? It's the United States, right? It, it, it has, in some ways, always been the United States, which has tremendous leverage over Israel and an ability to make these nonviolent Palestinian demonstrators feel heard. Like, this isn't an argument for opening up another round of final status negotiations, which, like, everyone agrees who's a serious observer of the conflict would fail, right? We can't just, like, have Israelis sit down with Mahmoud Abbas and, like, hammer out a deal. It's not going to happen. 
right, under the current leadership and the current structure of the conflict. But the United States has tremendous ability to improve Palestinian unity, to vindicate Palestinian rights, to try to push Israel to a position where it's feeling costs of the occupation more heavily and is more likely to make concessions, right? We just, the U.S. has a lot of influence that's just not been using it in a particularly effective way under, especially under Trump, but even under Biden right now, you know, there aren't great signs of this. So U.S. re-engagement is possible. It just needs to rethink the sort of vision of what it means to be pro-Israel that has dominated American politics if it wants to prevent this kind of thing from happening again. What you said, Zach, brings up a lot of points to me. I mean, like, look, if you're Joe Biden, this has been a bad week, right? Because look, you've, by the stances you've taken, you have helped split the Democratic Party. You've weakened yourself on foreign policy um, with your own party and just you've looked like a hypocrite on your own human rights bit. You, in effect, empowered Netanyahu to perhaps come back into power, which I know Biden and Netanyahu are friends, but I can't imagine the general U.S. government wanted Netanyahu still in charge. And you've somewhat ceded your authority on the Israel-Palestine issue for a while to come. Like, that's not even to mention, of course, the actual suffering of the people. Like, this did not go well on the U.S. side at all. Like, nothing, there are no, there's no win here. Maybe there's a ceasefire soon, maybe as soon as, as Thursday, and maybe the quiet diplomacy helped to a certain extent. But in the grand scheme of the narrative, in the way this actually played out, everyone's a loser. <laughs> and, like, the U.S., it didn't have to be this way. Biden, I feel, could have come out and just said, I want a ceasefire, but in order to get one, we need to do quiet diplomacy. That would have totally changed things. You might not have had a bunch of Democrats, you know, basically lambast the White House. You would have seen Biden on the side of the of the Palestinians, but also on like, you know, we're going to work to make things happen here, not completely embarrass the Israelis. You could have even just abstained from one of those um, ceasefire resolutions in the UN. I don't know, like there are other options out here. But it didn't have to be this way. I, I I think I mentioned this last week. I could have written one of those statements for Biden. And it feels like they just really blew an opportunity. And what happens next is in part because, you know, of that inaction. Um, so we're, we're going to leave you there. Uh, I want to thank our producer, Sophie Lalonde, for all of her hard work on our show and making it into something that you all actually want to listen to every week. And I want to encourage you to uh, rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. And with that, we will talk to you all next week when hopefully the fighting will have stopped in Israel-Palestine and, and we can maybe talk about something a little bit happier.